I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about the movie Oklahoma, which was or is a 1955 musical based on a stage musical by the same name that was written by Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. Uh, the movie stars Gordon McRae, Shirley Jones in her film debut, Rod Steiger, Charlotte Greenwood in one of her last films, Gloria Graham, Jean Nelson, James Whitmore, and Eddie Albert. And there are also lots of large crowd scenes with lots of singing and dancing. The production was the only musical directed by Fred Zinnemann. Um, it was also the first fi- feature film photographed in Todd A.O. Um, 7 millimeter widescreen which, and it was also simultaneously filmed in another um, kind of film. I'm taking some of your trivia, possibly. <laughs> That's okay. I, I have plenty. Okay. And uh, so the movie is set in Oklahoma Territory, right as the territory is beginning to aspire to statehood. The movie itself tells the story of a farm girl named Lori Williams, who lives on a farm with her Aunt Eller. And the story, or the movie, chronicles her courtship with two rival suitors. One is a cowboy named Curly, and the other one is the farmhand on the farm. His name is Judd. There's singing and dancing and a lot of Western expansion, sweeping vistas, and also a lot of talk about class and this particular society's expectations of women. So... (laughs) And a lot of um, Jungian and Freudian psychology <laughs> <laughs> on display in full form. Yeah. Yes. Oh, God, Oklahoma. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, do you have trivia? I do. So this film was, it was supposed to be in Oklahoma, but it was actually filmed in Arizona. Sure. Because... In the 1950s, Oklahoma was, like, so built up that they <laughs> could not film it as, like, a territory that was, like, open expanses of land. So they, they filmed it in Arizona. And um, a year in advance of production, the art director, Joseph Wright, studied the weather records for the location and discovered that the area was usually flooded terribly in spring. Oh. Um, which was when they were planning to film. So he insisted that they spend part of their budget, $15,000, on constructing a dam. No! And the, the producers were super pissed about it, because they were like, we don't need a dam. And actually, the floods came exactly when they were supposed to come, and it saved the uh, production costs of over $250,000, because they made this dam. Oh my god. Also, they were filming at the wrong time of year for there to be corn stalks, So they went to the University of Arizona Agricultural Department and said, fix this problem because we need to sing about corn stalks. And um, the department planted each stalk in individual containers and they grew to a height of 16 feet. And Oscar Hammerstein said, the corn is now as high as the eye of an elephant on top of another elephant. So we don't get a lot of backstory for Judd, and there was another song originally in this called The Lonely Room, where he explains his bitterness and frustrations from his life. They thought it was too heavy for 1950s moviegoers, so they cut it out. Oh, okay. So the rest of the movie is not at all heavy. It's fine. It's a delightful romp. (laughs) Sure. Um, Gloria Graham, who played Addo Annie, 
was tone deaf and she sang yeah (laughs) which i think is hilarious like just just dub her but they didn't dub her so they had to edit together all of her songs almost note by note just to bring together a song that was on key (laughs) oh and that actress i kept looking at her and being like i know this actress where do i know her from and then i was like oh it's a wonderful life She's in It's a Wonderful Life. She plays the sort of, like, town tart in that movie. Why does she always play... But what else was she in? Um, she was in a lot of things. I'm actually looking her up right now. We're on a little tangent. It's good. She was in one of the last Thin Man movies. She was in The Greatest Show on Earth. She was in a lot of, like, darker movies. There was a movie she was in, I'm thinking of, that is, I think, involves her, like, being disfigured in some way oh she has sort of a noirish look mm-hmm. so i could see that it's a wonderful life was one of her first movies yeah i think that was what i re- and she i mean her face is distinctive but like her hair and the way she was styled was so different in that movie that i think that's why i had trouble placing her mm-hmm. uh, but anyway she couldn't sing <laughs> <laughs> and then the song kansas city had to be edited for censors i already thought it was like fairly body yeah so will in the in the cut that made it will sang i could swear that she was padded from her shoulders to her heel and then she started dancing and her dancing made me feel that every single thing she had was absolutely real but in the original play script it said and later in the second act when she began to peel she proved that everything she had was absolutely real yep so i mean i i have a lot of thoughts about the way that like pornography is treated like basically when will's into pornography in this movie it's kind of like isn't that hilarious he's selling his wild oats and like strippers and whatever like fooling around but then when judd has pictures of girls pinned to his walls everyone's like well he's a creep (laughs) obviously yeah i'm like what so what is the standard under which it's, like, okay for this person, but not for this person. I, I, I did not get that. I'm, this is not trivia. I'm sorry, but thoughts about... <laughs> we have so a lot of thoughts about this movie. movie. So I'll leave the trivia there for this. And I believe that there is a specific reason you wanted to watch this movie, and it might have to do with the person you're bioing. Yes, it might. It might. So more personal trivia. There was something on Twitter today. Maybe we'll link to it uh, when we when we tweet about this episode, but there was something on Twitter about, you know, some benign but totally unique and slightly insane thing that you did when you were a kid that now, as an adult, you're like, how did I get away with this? Um, And mine isn't that bad. I mean, we already know that I, like, recorded songs from old movies and scenes from old movies to listen to in my car when I was driving (laughs) around. I was also part of the Shirley Jones fan club when I was in like, sixth grade, and... Oh, my gosh. So, yes, thanks to my parents, who were very supportive of my weird interests as a adolescent. <laughs> um, yes. So, I did look up Shirley Jones, but I can tell you that she um, was born on March 31st, 1934, in Charleroi, Pennsylvania. She had nothing to do with me moving to Pennsylvania, let me be clear. <laughs> of course not. Um, no. Her family moved to um, Smithton, nearby Smithton, Pennsylvania, when she was um, still very young, and she started singing at the family's Methodist church, 
and took voice lessons throughout high school when she also participated in school plays. She was, side note, named after Shirley Temple. So Charlotte Ryan Smith and are in western Pennsylvania, and she won the Miss Pittsburgh contest in 1952. She went soon after that to an open casting call with the casting director for Rodgers and Hammerstein for all of their, like, various musicals that they were doing, and she however, had apparently never heard of Rodgers and Hammerstein. She just was going. And the casting director was so impressed with her that he went and got Richard Rodgers, who was, like, up the street. And then Rodgers got Oscar Hammerstein, and they saw her, they loved her potential, and she was the first and only singer that they they put under personal contract with with them. So she got a minor role in South Pacific and then on Broadway and then appeared in a couple of other things on Broadway. And then she was cast in the film adaptation of Oklahoma, which was her first movie in 1955. She also appeared in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel the next year. And then the movie April Love in 1957. She was sort of, you know, typecast as wholesome and kind and that sort of continued when she was cast in The Music Man in 1962. But surprisingly, but inevitably, she was received a, an Academy Award in 1960 for her performance in the movie Elmer Gantry. She played a prostitute in that movie. So <laughs> Against type. That's right. Against type. So she continued to a film, appear in films in the 1960s. And she turned down the row of Carol Brady in The Brady Bunch. And most of most people anymore know her for the role that she would take in the 1970s of um, Shirley Partridge in The Partridge Family, which was a musical sitcom that was sort of loosely based on an actual family. And she appeared in that show with her real-life stepson, David Cassidy. She <laughs> was married to Jack Cassidy, who was a singer and an actor, and um, so she appeared in The Partridge Family, and then she was, she like continued to appear in things with um, David Cassidy. After the end of The Partridge Family, she tried to start her own television show in, in 1979. She had this, a show called Shirley that was very similar in a lot of ways to The Partridge Family. Uh, several years later, appeared in episodes of The Drew Carey Show and on The 70s Show. In addition to her film and television work, she also did a lot of recorded albums throughout this whole period. She got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1986, continued throughout the 80s and the early 2000s to appear in Broadway, including in a revival of 42nd Street um, <laughs> with one of her children. And then and it was apparently the first time that a mother and son were were known to appear together on Broadway. Side note, I saw Shirley Jones, uh, Sean Cassidy, another one of her said, it's Sean Cassidy? I can't keep the Cassidy brothers um, straight. One of her... I only know David. Yeah. One of her other children, I think it wasn't Patrick Cassidy, in a production of The Music Man at the Kennedy Center. So she just, like, performed with her sons. So you have seen her perform a lot. I, is she amazing? She is. I did not die from, from like, overwhelming love, partly because now as an adult, I know that Shirley Jones is also a Republican. And oh. so, so that kind of, personally, it's like, well, you know. You win some, you lose some. Maybe she's like an old school Abraham Lincoln Republican. Does that exist? I mean, she was really good friends with the Reagans, so mm, no trickle down. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, although she is a good, she's a longtime supporter of PETA, 
and, like, is all about animal rights, so we can give her that. So, yeah, she's still alive. I don't believe she is still performing. So that's the down and dirty on Shirley Jones. And I love that, like, each episode now you're sharing <laughs> some sort of nerdy confessional. <laughs> I think the next movies that we're doing I don't have any personal connection with, which is probably good. Okay. <laughs> but I'm enjoying them so much. <laughs> um, well, I will tell you about Gordon McRae. Perfect. Who, can we just say, what an amazing voice. Yes. Incredible. Uh, I mean, both of them are amazing. So he was born Albert Gordon McRae on March 12th in 1921 in East Orange, New Jersey. Yes! I know. Pennsylvania, New Jersey, every single time, somehow. He learned to play the piano, the clarinet, and the saxophone, and he acted and sang in the school drama club. Wow. Um, at, at age 19, he entered a singing contest and won a two-week engagement at the World's Fair in New York. And in 1940, while working in New York City as a page, he was discovered and hired to sing for the Horace Height Band. And then he made his Broadway debut in a show called Junior Miss as a replacement in the role of Tommy Arbuckle. Next, he appeared on Broadway in Ray Bolgan's 1946 review, Three to Make Ready. And then Capitol Records saw that performance and signed him to a long-term recording contract in 1947. Um, And he stayed with that label for more than 20 years. So he, I mean, I think similarly... As you were saying, he also did a lot of recording and touring just as a singer besides being an actor. Mm -hmm. So in October 1948 on ABC, he starred in the radio show The Railroad Hour, um, in which he presented operettas and musical dramatizations, all starring him and having many different leading ladies. I would watch that. Uh, I mean, listen to it. I know. (laughs) Why are there no more operetta TV shows? I don't know. (laughs) And that same year, he was signed to a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers, and soon after, he made his film debut in The Big Punch, which was actually not a musical. Um, But then after that, they capitalized on his singing, and he starred in a whole string of hit musicals, starting with Look for the Silver Lining in 1949, in which he featured opposite June Haver and Ray Bolger. And then he was in five films with Doris Day, friend of the podcast Doris Day, (laughs) beginning with T for Two in 1950. And it made me want to go watch some of the movies where they were paired together, because she has such... her voice is very different and I would I don't know how much singing together they do but I would like to hear them sing together Mm -hmm. his two most well-known films were Oklahoma in 1955 and Carousel in 1956 also with Shirley Jones yeah so they co-starred they were a popular screen pair and they were both written by Rodgers and Hammerstein. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, he was drinking heavily and became an alcoholic. And that obviously affected his career. He actually later revealed that um, while he was filming Carousel, he was picked up for drunk driving. It's interesting because have you seen Carousel? Yes. Because that I could see like being him being in that place in his life also being very like method for playing that role. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> well, I was gonna say too, like sort of callously, that like if you weren't already drinking heavily and then you played that role, you would start drinking heavily. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> like you I would mean, be well within your rights. <laughs> they're actually reviving it on Broadway now. Yeah, I don't. 
They're they're like advertising it as if it's some like happy romp. Really? I, also, I feel like the only way you revive that now and have it be good is if you like really lean into the whole anti-hero like this guy's super messed up thing. Yeah. The nice thing is he got sober by the 1970s and he went on to counsel other alcoholics. And later in his life, he continued recording and performing on television. And he and his wife, Sheila McRae, appeared together frequently and even released an album together. Wow. Um, And they, they had two daughters who also became actors. He suffered a stroke in 1982 but with the support of his family, he recovered and continued to tour and perform when his health allowed it. On January 24th, 1986, he died at the age of 64 in Lincoln, Nebraska from pneumonia after complications from cancer of the jaw and mouth. Oof. So that's him. I mean, it's it's a little sad, but not terrible overall. Yeah. I have to warn you, Hillary, that I literally have four pages of notes on this movie. Um, I only have three pages, but they are very tightly packed. So I think we need to get into it. Yeah. I'm, can, so can I give a little background? Yes, absolutely. On this in my life. I only watched this movie once before, and I was in high school. And I hated it so much oh, no. that I was just like, I will never watch this again. But You must like me. <laughs> That you but, watched well, I was it like, for it's me. It's worth a revisit. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. Like many, you know, I'm, I have on the record as loving musicals. I love a lot of the music in this movie. Yes. And I grew up listening to the cast album from this movie. And so I listened to this music for like most of my childhood before I ever saw the movie. And to this day, like... I literally sing Sorry with the Fringe on top to my baby as a lullaby. <laughs> and then watching this movie made me feel, like, weird about that. <laughs> it's a- but, like, the music is great. Yeah. And the singing is great. And that's so that, yeah. So I just wanted to say that, like, that is the thing that I was okay with about this movie. <laughs> music, good. Cinematography, also interesting and good. Right? Yes. Uh, production value was amazing. I, yeah, I thought the shots were really cool with, like, going through the cornfields. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they got the beautiful, like, weather all the time, but you could see that it was really these huge expanses of land, and yeah. it was beautiful. It was a, a visually beautiful movie, movie, I thought. Yes. And we'll talk about the costumes, which were interesting. How should we approach... Some of the other, the things that were not so good. Let's start with something small. The accents. The dialect that they were doing? Yeah, like, what was the deal with that? Because, first of all, I couldn't understand them, and I had to literally put the subtitles on. To they to... can't say no. <laughs> oh, gosh. But, and when I had put the subtitles on, it spelled out the dialect, oh, and it just seemed... So that was easy? <laughs> yeah. It seems so weird. Like, was it... So, like, say you are from Oklahoma and you watch this movie. Like, is this insulting to you? Yeah. Because it it just seemed like they were like, look at these dumb, simple farmers with their weird accents and their poor English. Yeah. Is is that... Like, it didn't feel like 
oh, we're trying to be authentic. It felt like we are mocking these people. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you get that also? I mean, I don't know if I felt like it was mocking it, but I was like, mostly what I thought was, at some point, didn't someone say to these these people, like, this is hard for people to understand, and don't do this. (laughs) Like, this is just not a good idea. (laughs) The other thing that... I'm jumping around, but this the music is beautiful in this, but like it really made me confront the fact that so much of Rodgers and Hammerstein's songs are just like super problematic in terms of gender mm-hmm. and race stuff and class stuff. Yeah. And like the, like the song The Farmer and the Cowman Should Be Friends, which is based entirely on they should be friends because they're the ones who are expanding into the territory and taking it over from the non-white people, and so we should band together. That that kind of message? Fun fact, Hillary. Yes. Uh, in grade school, I performed that song. We, they That was like our class song, and I was one of the cowmen, just just so we know which side I'm Yeah, I, I'm going to file that information away. <laughs> <laughs> well, and why is, there a, like, why is there a Persian peddler walking around Oklahoma yes, territory? Yes, let's talk about race, because I feel like, let's talk about race first, because then gender's going to take, like, half an hour. Yeah, but like, <laughs> and, and class, because Judd. Yeah, so my, like, English major mind was sort of turned on by, not, not in a sexy way, but, like, a light bulb went off when Curly was talking about Judd and saying how he has, like, dark wire. Like, who would like this ugly guy with the dark, wiry hair? Mm-hmm. And I was like, is that a dog whistle? Yeah. Did you pick up on that? Because to me it felt like that was what he was saying. Like, you, your hair looks non-white, so you're, like, ugly. And then... Like you were saying, they also have this Persian peddler, which, by the way, whitewashing with this actor. Right. <laughs> Although by the end of this movie, I know this makes no sense, but he, like he was one of the only characters that I had any sort of fondness for. Yeah, the peddler. Well, and Ann <laughs> Eller. I was like, at least I don't know. Ann Eller encouraged people to sexually assault her niece, so I have no, <laughs> no fondness for her. At least he sort of acted logically. In a way. Well, he also like, was like, oh, I act, I'm, like, speaking of people sexually assaulting people, he, like, he gets caught, like, taking girls behind haystacks, and then is like, crap, you know, I have to marry this, I'm being forced to marry this girl I don't actually want to marry, and so he, like, buys back all this crap from Will, so that Will has the $50 to go buy Ado Annie from her dad. Yeah, that was so weird. It seems dishonest on Allie Hacken's point. Like, couldn't he just be like, I'm leaving, I'm getting out of here? Well... He literally has a horse and cart. (laughs) Yeah, he... That's probably what he should have done. But, Ado Annie, so, like, what is your read on her? Because in some ways, she kind of seemed like she had a healthy sexuality. Yes. But she literally seemed to have no agency. It was just, like, whoever came up and was like, I'm gonna grab you. I'm gonna grab you. She was just like, oh, yeah, that's great. Like, whoever just shows up, that's I'm cool with that. Yeah. But she, like, I don't know, you could say that her, like, the whole song about I Can't Say No is, like, a, you know, like, some self-awareness there, where she's, she's like, I just can't. I just, as long, you know, as someone's kissing me, I'm just, I'm ready to go. Like, I don't, okay, I don't want to get too, like, intense about this, but basically it seemed like she and Laurie were being set up as two 
two like possible ways that girls can experience like blossoming sexuality. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they're both around like 17, 18 or that's what they're supposed to be in this movie. Well, and she, fun fact, Shirley Jones is 21 and Gloria Graham is 32. Yeah, I believe that because a lot of the people in this movie looked way too old to be playing the roles they were right. playing. <laughs> if you want to get into like the Freudian stuff, so it's like These are two potentially, like, teenage girls who are, you know, starting to have sexual feelings. And, like, Addo Annie is kind of like, this is great. Like, I embrace this. I go with it. I'm getting enjoyment out of it. Laurie is definitely, like, fearful and uncomfortable with her sexuality in a way that seems to extend the whole juxtaposition of Judd and Curly, even in her dream sequence. It seemed to me like... There was some subtext that she was also kind of afraid of that sexuality with Curly. Mm-hmm. And that's why Judd kept coming up. I mean, is that, am I getting like too like psychoanalytical with this? I guess. I mean, I guess that would help understand, uh, explain to me why she would like be putting off Curly because like from the very beginning, Aunt Eller says to Curly, like, you know, you guys like each other. Why aren't you together? You should be together. Um, I believe. What she actually says is, like, just grab her and kiss her. That's what she really wants, even if she's saying no. (laughs) (laughs) However, we know that that Lori actually does like Curly, but she's doing this, Mm -hmm. like, I'm not, like, I am in no way, like, victim-shaming her, victim-blaming her. But she's doing this thing where she's, like, saying to Curly, you know, being mean to Curly, and then saying to Ann Eller, where where did Curly go? And Ann Eller is like, get your shit together, girl. If she would just listen to Ann Eller, or if someone would listen to Ann Eller, then we wouldn't have a movie at all, because he would ride up on his horse, and, and Curly would be like, you know, I'm gonna ask her, Lori, to the shindig, and, you know, whether she wants to go or not, we should go. And because we really do like each other, and then they would get together. And if he did kiss her then, then they would do the whole kiss then and not two and a half hours later. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it seemed like in the end, what pushed her to, like, get together with Curly was basically that she was afraid of Judd and wanted protection, kind of. And that overcame her fear. She goes, she, like, starts yelling for Curly to come protect her. And his way of protecting her is to kiss her. Yeah, is to grab her and kiss her. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I wrote total misread of the moment. Right. (laughs) Six hours too late, Curly. (laughs) But apparently it worked, because then they ended up together, but... So, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, if that was... I don't know if that's actual text, or if that's just me, like, reading something weird into this, but definitely with the dream sequence, there was a lot of, like, stuff about fear and sexuality, mm-hmm. and, like, with the with the dance hall girls mm-hmm. and all of that stuff, like, she was kind of being pulled into that, and it she just seemed very uncomfortable. Yeah. With that part of herself. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely um, some juxtaposition between Curly and Judd in the in the dream sequence. At one point I texted you and you were like, I'm so sorry that you had to watch this movie. And I was like, it's okay, I'm kind of enjoying it. That was about like 20 minutes in. Uh-huh. And, like, and then I two and a half hours that, later. Yeah, two and a half hours later I was like, oh my god, this is, this is like traumatic. I literally had bad dreams yeah. about this movie. The first 20 minutes, 
going into it knowing that, like, I had remembered how bad the gender stuff was. The first 20 minutes, if you, like, kind of set that aside, it is enjoyable because it's, like, just a lot of beautiful scenery and, like, great songs and dance scenes. And after we got past that part, Mm -hmm. I just, it was all downhill. Yeah. Well, because those first 20 minutes are basically straight singing. There's, like, a few lines of dialogue, yeah, and then you got past that point. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the dancing because normally I am very into, like, skilled dancing in a movie, but I really felt put off by it in this movie. Like, I felt like instead of the dancing, like, it being incorporated well into the scenes, that it was sort of, like, jarring and took you out. Like, it felt like we're in the story, and then it was, like, a total break Mm -hmm. when they had the dance scenes, and it felt like you were just watching a ballet. Yeah. Which is fine, like, if you're, if you know that you're watching a ballet. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, like, like the Kansas City song goes, there's the, you know, the part where Will's talking about Kansas City, and then it sort of goes on for another, you know, 150% where they're just dancing. It's like, okay, we got, like, this did what it needed to do to move the plot along or, like, show us character, but, like, and this would be fun to see, like, if it were on the stage, but, like, it's... Not interesting. Yeah. I just felt like it was not well incorporated enough. No. To to be seamless. Like it a lot of the other musicals I like. Well and then it is more that way. And what did you think about in the dream sequence where, you know, the, the two leads in the whole movie are played by Gordon McRae and Shirley Jones, except for during the dream sequence when they are like obviously set up as like these are not your leads because they can't dance. And so... Oh, I hated that. I was like... I hated that. At, at least in, like, An American in Paris, you have a 20-minute dancing. The people you've been it's watching... Gene it's Gene Kelly. dancing. It's, it's someone you cannot take your eyes off of. Yeah. It has nothing um, to do with the plot, but it's Gene Kelly. Who is this blonde lady dancing in the dream sequence? Well, I, th- I didn't say this in the trivia, but the guy who plays Judd is himself in the dance yeah. sequence, in that dance dream sequence, and... He had no professional training as a dancer, and he worked, like, with a, you know, a choreographer on it, and he said it was, like, one of the greatest accomplishments of his life. And he apparently, like, got good reviews from the dance community for But, like, what mostly he what he that. did was, like, walk around and toss women. I guess there's an art to that, yeah. too. <laughs> well, if you're a white man, you do the minimum, and people give you, like, an Oscar. Oh, yeah. So. Um, Should we talk more about that? Question for you. Or are you... What? Yes. Is that the question you're going to ask? Yes. Is Judd an incel? (laughs) So I don't know if we're supposed to, like, empathize with him or if we're supposed to hate him and if we're supposed to hate him because he's lower class or if we're supposed to hate him because he's an asshole and is stalking Laurie and, like, tries to outrun a train with you know, a horse and buggy, and lights a haystack on fire, and tries to kill Curly at least twice that we know of. So, (laughs) I think the answer to your question is, if he's not, he's some kind of jerk. Yeah, I mean, when the movie starts, I, like, immediately got my back up when they, it, it was set up like, he's hired hand, he's of the lower classes with dirty hands, and lives in the smokehouse, so therefore, like, he's the villain. So, like, I felt like my sympathies were ignited, mm-hmm. but then 
the whole way he behaves the entire movie is I like it was familiar to me from like things I have experienced in the world. Not that they lit haystacks on fire and tried to kill people, but like this sense of like resentment because they didn't get something mm -hmm. that they thought they deserved related to like a woman that they liked. Yeah. I mean like the the specific scene that made me think of the incels like the involuntary celibate group was when they show him in the smokehouse with the peddler and oh, right. he's trying to sell him more pictures and he's like, "Well, you know, I'm sick of pictures. Like I've looked at so many pictures of naked women and like I want a real woman now." Yeah. And the whole thing I'm assuming he had some sort of mental illness or something, but I could like imagine that it would be very hard to be like a person who wanted intimacy and never got intimacy yeah but like but the that like level of like he had problems <laughs> you know that's the kind of guy where i'm like you know you go somewhere else where they don't know you like i know that you know he's a hired hand so he doesn't have any money but like it seems like no one has any money you know and if he had 42 dollars why didn't he you know take off and wh wh what is he doing in the time between when he gets fired because Lori has finally had enough of him and then when she when he like lights the haystack on fire and then curly kills him you know what's he doing is he working somewhere else why isn't he just why didn't he just leave town i guess revenge i guess he's an incel i yeah. think he, i think he's an incel he has to take it out on these people well it he seemed like someone who like didn't have proper social skills because yeah. he would just like come up to Laurie and sort of like glower at her yeah. and be this like intimidating presence and say creepy things. Yeah, this isn't how you woo a a, per, a potential love interest. Yeah, <laughs> which makes me think that he doesn't he doesn't care about Laurie in particular. He just wanted a woman in general, and any woman would do. I thought it was so creepy and also like brought up like a visceral reaction in me when they were in the carriage together yes. and he started talking about like remember that time I was sick and you came in and I was in bed yeah and you like put your hand on my forehead and she was like yeah I remember and he's like well I remember a lot and I was just like oh god it's like times when you have you think you had a normal interaction with someone and then they like turn around and turn it into something like yeah super sexual and you're just like god like i can't even just be a person in the world doing normal things yeah. like and <laughs> yep this is... oh he i have a question for you <laughs> and it relates to aunt eller yes aunt eller employs judd yes but she also seems to not trust him in any way yeah and think that he is a threat to her niece so why why is that so she says at the beginning of the movie that without him they would not be able to run the farm and at the end of the movie she says something about like you know when she's trying to give laurie some advice when laurie's like oh why does life have to be so hard when it just started to be so good and aller is like you gotta learn to hold all the things because life is sometimes good and life is sometimes bad and you know and sometimes you get to the end of your life and the person that you love isn't there anymore which makes me think oh she had a husband and the husband died, leaving her with this farm that she had to, like, take care of. And, you know, didn't 
Mio, and she's all by herself out there in the territory with her niece, which I don't know, like, what the rest of the family backstory is. To me, that says that she was, like, you know, she's this older woman who, like, had very little option but to hire a farmhand, because it's not like she could, like, hire, you know, like, some other guy to, like, do this work. Um, And I wonder if, like, that was just, like, the thing that was done, like, if other farmers hired farmhands. So, like, her hands were tied. I don't know. I'm pro Ann Eller, so... (laughs) (laughs) she should have probably done something about Judd but she probably didn't have a lot of choice women are generally just traded for money in this movie but like in that basket bidding contest I was like listen people this is not a binding contract if this if someone bids on your basket and you don't want to spend time with that person you literally can just not do it (laughs) Yeah, although, like, was totally just, like, the basket is, like, a side thing. They're really bidding on the women. Is that also, like, class-wise, you're like, you guys say that you're better than, like, prostitutes or, you know, whatever, but are you really? (laughs) Yeah. And that's another thing, like, if Judd was supposed to be low-class, I don't understand how Curly was of a different, how was Curly of a higher class than Judd? Unless, they, like, they're it's less like, about, like, like it's the intersection of class and race and class and the actual kind of work that you're doing. Yeah, I guess that could be. I, it, it seemed weird to me. I was like, Curly has nothing. Like, Curly is getting out of this deal, like, a young, beautiful wife and an entire farm, and he had no money yeah. at all. Yeah. And I was like, this seems, like, a little too easy for him. Well, he's a beautiful but... rancher, so... Or a beautiful... Yeah, a beautiful rancher, so he gets to win. Yeah. On a positive note, I, I really love that um, People Will Say We're In Love song. Yeah. So, Rodgers and Hammerstein, the lyrics are, so, like, there's a lot of issues, but on the other hand, they're, like, also really clever. I like the word play that they use in their songs. Yeah. Although, so, like, that was a song that I was listening to going, can we just recognize that you guys are in love and just, like movie ends here oh it was like high school was, where yeah it was like, like oh my everyone gosh. knows that these two people like each other but they and they know we like they like each other yeah i'm just like this is is this really the plot of this movie can we talk about the judd is dead song um, because i thought that was so disturbing i have a lot of cuss words in my notes on that partly because you know judd like walks in and it's like Says something about, like, how he starts by saying that he could hang himself on the rope, and then he starts singing about what people would say at the funeral. And then after that, Judd confides in him about how badly he's been treated and, like, at his last place and here. Like, what is wrong with you people? Yeah, he was like, you know what you should do? Just kill yourself. Here's an easy way to do it. And then everyone will miss you. And, like, it was like, I cannot imagine a worse thing to do to someone. (laughs) No, that's, like, straight-up bullying right there. And then they whip out their guns. Uh, yeah, that was... I really, uh, was not a fan of Curly as a person. No. Oh, I have written down here that Curly says at one point, Quit worrying or I'll spank you. (laughs) Oh, man. There was not a lot to like in this movie. Like, I was kind of scrambling to come up with anything to be and listen i never want to hear it again about an american <laughs> I, know, I know i know we're because even this movie we are is even. no this is worse no, no. <laughs> okay 
I will, because of this movie, I will watch, I don't know what I'll agree to watch, but yes, okay, sure, I'll owe you. I feel like we need, like, a palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah, I know. Do we need another Catherine Hepburn movie? Do we need to watch, like, That's what Bringing Up Baby to, like... <laughs> or, like, something where she argues for women's rights, like Adam's Rib. That would be nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I will say that I did like, in the beginning of the second act, where Judd is being a horrible person and trying to outrace the train, and he, like, then, no no surprise, the horses are freaked out, so then Judd gets down to, like, comfort the horses, which you're like, you didn't think that this was going to be a bad idea. And then Lori grabs the reins and takes off, and I was like, keep riding, girl. Just keep going. You, like, you finally made a decision. Like, keep going. Yeah, I think that's kind of, like, the only point in the movie in which she does something assertive. And that talk that she had with Aunt Eller at the end that that you mentioned, even the way that Aunt Eller phrases it, she says, like, lots of things happen to a woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, oh, you're going to do lots of things in your life and, like, some of them will be good or some will be bad. It was just very much like, women are passive. Right. And good and bad things come into their lives. Right. Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? Oh, another thing we could talk about that might have some positive things. Costumes. Um, I have been waiting to talk to you about one particular costume, which is, did you notice the dress that Lori is wearing right before the ballet thing, dream, inner blued thing? Is it the gingham dress? The pink gingham dress. Did you notice it has pockets? Yes. No. She pulls... The elixir that she buys from Allie Hackham to, like, help her decide what she wants, which, whatever. She pulls it out of um, a pocket in her dress. She has a, she's wearing a dress that has pockets. See, this makes me like (laughs) (laughs) That is great. No, I didn't notice it. You have a good eye. I I was just like, I love that dress. I thought it was beautiful. You could pull off that dress. I mean, I actually was looking for gingham clothing this summer and I didn't find anything good. Um, Prairie dresses are back in style, I'll have you know. I think the New York Times fashion section just did a whole thing about it, so there you go. Alright, well maybe I need to go on the lookout again. Yeah. What other costumes caught your eye? Uh, I really liked her wedding dress and veil. Oh yeah. I thought they were beautiful and I liked her honeymoon outfit with like the travel suit and the hat. At the end. The quickest apparent costume change in history. Where they, like, go in one door in one outfit and come out the other door in another outfit. (laughs) And, I mean, just as a general comment, I thought the costumes were really colorful Mm -hmm. and beautiful. And that was one of the things that made the film visually appealing. Yeah, totally. Um, I also liked Ann Eller's dress that she wore in into town, into Claremore to meet the train. I don't really understand why she had to go meet the train, but... So she could tap dance. That's Oh, she had to get the lanterns for the party for some reason. Oh, that's right. Um, Yeah, but she also had to tap dance. (laughs) I, even though it, like, went on way too long, I did think it was really cool when 
Willie was dancing on the train because that was like a real moving train and he and those girls had to legitimately jump off a moving train. Yeah, that's pretty. For that. And Amazing. It was pretty cool. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Should we talk about social justice? So we talked a lot about class and we talked a lot about gender and how those two categories are addressed in this film. We touched briefly on race. Do we have anything more we want to say about any of those categories? Well, one thing that struck me, like, the whole movie, they're just like, Oklahoma's so great. We love this territory. It's great, and then we're going to become a state. But, like, in in the final scene where they're getting ready to leave for their honeymoon and... They're like, oh, but we need a trial Mm -hmm. because Curly killed somebody. It's like the most corrupt thing ever. It's just like the town being like, well, we know Curly, so we'll just do it here. And he basically tells Curly what to say. Like Curly starts being like, yeah, I hated Judd because we had these problems. And they're like, no, don't say that. Just say it was self-defense. And then, like, the town votes, basically. Yeah. (laughs) And And they're like, all right, bye, go off on your honeymoon. Yeah. And if it had been the reverse... Yeah. And it was, like, Judd... Having killed Curly. Yeah. They would have... They they would have strung him up, probably. Well, but, I mean, he's... He did... He did actually kill him out of self-defense. Like, he would never have, like... What's... If, um, Judd hadn't come back and set the haystacks on fire and set the haystack on which they were standing on fire, then, you know, like, Curly, like, wasn't about to give him another thought in the world, because he, like, got, you know, got the woman he loved, and was off to go on his honeymoon, and so, you know, here was this guy, like, coming back in and and attacking them. I don't fault them for, like, the decision that it was self-defense. I do think, I wanted to be, like, due process of law, but... Yeah, I think that was, I mean, it clearly was self-defense, but... Yeah, the the fact, the way that they handled it and treated it like, oh, of course. Well, and that they, like, basically bribed, even in Eller, bribed the federal marshal into just, like, letting it go. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of, that didn't sit well with me. So, yeah, I don't think that there was any kind of good social justice. It was very, like, they. I felt like the whole community was super tribal. Yeah. And if you weren't in the tribe for one reason or another... Right. They came together for things like, you know, like the school, the building of the school. But otherwise, it was very much like everyone on their own. Yeah. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Finally, the Bechdel test. <laughs> what is your vote, Hillary? Well, let me think about this. Um, this whole movie is about whether or not the, any of these people are getting married to whatever man. So I'm going to say no. Yeah, I mean, it's just the gender politics are so bad in this movie that I almost find it hard to talk about them. Because it's not like some of the other movies we watched where it's like, it's subtle, but it's there. Or it's... Like, you know, there's not enough women in the cast. Like, it is explicitly, like, terrible assaulting people, paying for women, women not being able to do anything, really. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, uh, it is terrible. Because I was thinking about it, like, the the conversations. And the only conversation that I thought could, like, possibly 
count was the one between Aunt Eller and Laurie where she's like, they're talking about good and bad stuff happening mm-hmm. in your life. But I don't think it can and ever pass because because of this movie. <laughs> yeah, because of this movie. So it brings up a well, lot of well, like yeah, it brings up a lot of like categories of experience but then doesn't really do anything at all um to <laughs> for any of the people that are involved. <laughs> yeah. So I mean I really hope that this is the last time I ever see this. <laughs> And it's sad because I will continue to listen to Sorry with the Fringe on Top, where they they ask if um, the horses are as white as snow, and they're like, well, one's like snow, but the other's more like milk. That is the kind of one that I enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Um, so what, what, what rating would you give it? Um, I'm going to say a one and a half for the, for the Vistas. And for the, like, nostalgia, the fact that it's eminently, like, sing-alongable, and for Shirley Jones, and, and Ann Eller, because. Um, <laughs> ride or die, Ann That's Eller. right, ride or die, Ann um, What about you? Uh, you can't give it a zero. Uh, I'll, all right, I'll give it one star. <laughs> I'm going to go and look and see what what um, what rating I gave in American Bears. I think you might have given it two. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've ever done less than two, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree with, so it is a beautiful, it is visually beautiful, and I enjoyed that, and I was singing along with a lot of the songs, like when Oklahoma came on, I could not stop myself from singing yeah, it. Yeah, me neither. Broke into song. Um, but that is basically, uh, and, and in the costumes... But those were the thing, the only redeemable things, and it. I just found it so not even just frustrating, but also like disturbing. Yeah, <laughs> to watch. So, yep, one star. Yeah. Gee, what's our next movie? What's our palate cleanser? I don't know if it'll be a palate. It will be a, a big change of pace. Yes, yeah. it's going to be better than this. A dial M for murder. <laughs> yeah, it's different, and it will be our first Grace Kelly movie. So yes, which is. You know, a big oversight that we haven't done one of hers yet. And we'll have a return to Hitchcock. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow... Here's another day!